I remember when Fox became a TV channel in Canada. I remember it because of the Fox Kids cartoon lineup, because they had some great shows that we never got to see before. It was 1994. I was living in Edmonton. I was 15. And I was excited that my TV now had cartoons involving superheroes on them. I never had a lot of money for comics off the spinner rack, and this meant I could get a lot more of my regular dose of superhero nonsense. I was familiar with the X-Men cartoons and Spider-Man, but suddenly there was this other show that blew my mind. It burrowed itself deep in my heart. And that show had one of the greatest theme songs of all time. Just listen to that. Absolutely incredible. Everything about this show, and more specifically, the titular character and its multiple reincarnations, is ridiculous. A character who's had a comic and three different TV series, all of which are fantastic. This is Issue Zero, a show about the power of fandom and pop culture. And today, we're going to investigate a character who, despite having so much awesome going for them, still somehow manages to lurk in the shadows. Of course, we're talking about that big blue beacon of justice, the tech. Spoon! Mm, I don't get it. That was it. That right there, that was the moment I fell in love with the guy when he declared while eating cereal that Spoon would be his battle cry. I even got a shirt with him yelling it. When I think about it, I might have been eating cereal myself at the time. Bear in mind, this was a kid's show on a Saturday morning, so it's entirely possible. Now, maybe you're not familiar with The Tick. By the end of this episode, you will be. The Tick is a giant dude. He's big. He's blue. He's got little antennae on the top of his head that are very sensitive. And if they're damaged, he gets super clumsy. Mind you, he's pretty clumsy already. Oafish would be a better descriptor. He's incredibly strong, but not like Superman level strength. His described level of strength is as having the combined strength of a very crowded bus stop's worth of people. Yes, that's the legitimate description. But more importantly, most importantly, actually, the tick is good. He is pure good. He doesn't lie. He doesn't cheat. And everything he does is to help those around him. He has boundless enthusiasm for doing the right thing. The tick lives for justice and helping those around him, period. No exceptions. I love the tick. I mean, because that was really the only thing that made, uh, I mean, this is going to sound like a yeah, backhanded compliment, but it's like that was the thing that made New England Comics sort of a going concern. You know, like they were they were a comic book store that happened to publish the Tick, and then I, that kind of gave them the jump to do basically Tick spinoffs. 
you know, I, I, I mean, I love the tick. I was crazy about it. And I, and, and I really thought of, I mean, I think that the tick was kind of counter-programming to that early 90s stuff, but it, I feel like in its heart, it was sort of a, an 80s comic. I mean, it was like much more in the realm of Gru the Wanderer, um, you know, Ninja Turtles, like that kind of DIY aesthetic, black and white comic. Um, you know, that, and, and that is, you know, that was what I sort of grew up really gravitating to was was sort of like you know genre humor books that type of stuff and here's the thing by doing so he lampoons every good guy superhero trope he's good and yet weirdly normal at the same time so silly that he pokes fun at how serious captain america seems to be but and this is important at no point does the tick ever come across as crass. There is a genuine, pure goodness about the tick. And I think that's what makes him so endearing as a character. Little did I know, living as a teen in the Canadian tundra of Edmonton, when he first appeared on my TV, the tick had actually been around for more than a decade. Since the summer of 1986, actually, when 18-year-old Ben Edlund debuted the character as the mascot for the New England Comics Newsletter. Now, according to Wikipedia, so you know it's good stuff, the Tick's real origins can be traced to when Ben was 17 and he tagged along with some friends to his local shop, New England Comics. That was where his love of comic books began. It inspired him to start tinkering with the design of a character... And a few months later, The Tick made his debut as the store's mascot in their newsletter. This original iteration of The Tick was a fair bit different. And it was darker from what was presented on the Saturday morning cartoon. In this version, the comic version, The Tick was legally insane and was an escaped mental patient. The character was very popular with the store's clientele, and so they paid Edlin to create some full-length black-and-white comics. This was where the tick we know and love really came into his own. The jokes and all the over-the-top characters started appearing. Villains like the man-eating cow, who is a cow that eats people. Red Scare, an obvious jab at the deluge of Cold War-era villains hailing from the Soviet Union. And Sagan the Wolf a Japanese ninja warlord who commands a legion of zillions and billions of ninjas. I mean, what would the late 80s pop culture have been without ninjas? Fortunately, that's a question we don't even need to ask. Despite the fact I just asked it. This is what I love most about The Tick. How it's an obvious satire of superheroes, while at the same time shows a definitive love for them. And this was something comic fans of the era went nuts for, including the Eisner Award-winning comic artist Xander Cannon, who eventually wound up working on a Tick spinoff we'll discuss in a few minutes. They happened to get a, a letter from me. I mean, you know, like, I, it was just, uh, I had, you know, I had sent it out. I, I was only aware of them as the publisher of the Tick. I mean, I, I knew that, I mean, I guess I was vaguely aware of their origins, but I was too young to care about that kind of stuff at that point. And so... Yeah, I mean, I just knew them as the as the publisher of the Tick, and and I knew that I liked that comic, and I thought, I mean, I just had I just had wild hopes of doing comics at that time. According to an article from Digital Fix in 2006, the Tick's very appearance is supposed to parody characters like Superman. He's giant, 
muscular, square-jawed, wearing a form-fitting blue suit, which was actually supposed to be brown, but the editors decided blue looked better in print. That over-the-top muscular look was actually taken from a character called the Cockroach. Now, the Cockroach was a secondary character in a 1980s comic called Cerberus, created by Canadian Dave Sim. Cerberus is a really cool comic. In terms of the impact it had on indie comics especially. Go to a convention and talk about how you're a big Cerberus fan. Instant cred, bud. But the comics for The Tick were only the first step. According to an interview Edlin did with Animation World magazine back in 1997, he was still in college when he was approached by a licensing company called Kisscom. Now, this is the same era when Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were coding the world in turtle mania. Turtle power, if you will. And everyone was looking for that next big undiscovered thing. Now, that's a connection that I'd never really taken into account until I started researching this. See, if you've watched the Netflix series, The Toys That Made Us, you'd know that the Ninja Turtles were really just an undiscovered indie comic from Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. They created their own comic imprint called Mirage Studios, which is a fancy way of saying two guys rooming together creating comics in their living room. The Turtles were creating a small but very loyal fan base, and then one of the issues of that indie comic found its way into the hands of a guy named Mark Friedman. He was a licensing agent who saw something special and unique about the comic, and he also saw potential to make a lot of money. Mark Friedman is responsible for taking the Turtles from indie comic obscurity to international toy and cartoon juggernaut. And as such, everyone was looking to recreate that success. So The Tick, with its relatively small but incredibly loyal northeastern U.S. fan base... And its unique characters seemed like the next big thing. Let's not forget that The Tick was being published as part of a newsletter from a comic book store, but had developed such a following, artists and writers were sending in their portfolios to the shop to work with them on a character that started as a mascot for their newsletter. Think about that. That is how Xander Cannon came to work on The Tick spinoff, Machine Gun Vigilante. They happened to get a, a letter from me. I mean, you know, like I, it was just, you know, I had sent it out. I, I was only aware of them as the publisher of The Tick. I mean, I, I knew that, I mean, I guess I was vaguely aware of their origins, but that goes, I was too young to care about that kind of stuff at that point. And so, yeah, I mean, I just knew them as the, as the publisher of The Tick, and, and I knew that I liked that comic, and I thought, I mean, I just had, I just had wild hopes of doing comics at that time. Edland was eager to take the next step with his creation as well, so he signed up. And that contract he signed with Kisscom will play a huge role as this story develops. It's still the early 90s, and Kisscom starts shopping the character around to the networks and animation companies. But the tick didn't land. No one wanted to take a risk on something as over-the-top as Ben Edland's escaped invincible mental patient superhero. I don't really know if over-the-top is even the right term. It was just weird. A big mashup of comedy and action that was a real thumb in the eye of all the stuff that was popular in mainstream comics. The grit, the litany of pouches on every character, the over-the-top dark violence. 
Which is interesting because the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic was all of those things. If you ever find those original Turtle comics, they are violent. The Tick was violent too, but it was more of a satire of violence than anything else because the lead character was always so genuine and good. Despite Kisscom's efforts, things were not looking good for a Tick-centric media empire. But fans of the comic had no idea this was going on, and their love of the Tick just continued to grow. Again, Xander Cannon. When I was in high school, I was so into collecting comics, you know, and I would go and and I I had very precise tastes, like I'm, you know, oh no, I don't like that, and that, and they change pencilers, and you know, like so I would really scour the racks every every week, and I remember I think probably the first issue I saw the Tick was like issue two or something because it had a die cut cover and I you know I thought that was cool and you know and it was just and then you open it up and it's like oh it's 100% my jam <laughs> superheroes that are completely funny do not take themselves seriously at all everything's a parody great I just thought that was I just thought that was the best and and so I was you know I was on board with the tick from from the very beginning I, I didn't see the newsletters but I mean I you know as soon as it was a comic, I mean, I'm sure I don't have a valuable printing of it or anything, but it was I was on board early. But things changed when Sunbow Entertainment got involved. They were a New York-based animation company that had also been responsible for Transformers and G.I. Joe. They liked the concept and were looking for something new. According to Edland, it was actually Sunbow that teamed him up with Richard Liebman-Smith. And the two began working on their first attempt at a Tick children's television show. It was a task. There were a lot of things that would need to change in order to make the character more appealing to children, 10 to 13-year-olds specifically. First thing to go, the origin story. No longer would the Tick be an escaped mental patient. Instead, he would have a much more mysterious origin. In fact, it would be so mysterious, there wouldn't be one. I've always wondered if that was just a way of maintaining mystery or whether or not they just couldn't think one up that worked. But given the limited time they had to develop the script, I'd like to think that Edland had something in mind for an origin story that he'd get to eventually, but never bothered to execute, realizing that there wasn't even a need for it. Fans liked the tick for who he was and who he hung out with. Where he came from didn't really matter. Targeting a younger audience didn't change the satirical nature of the character. In fact, they doubled down on it, creating a whole slew of additional characters, all obvious parodies of mainstream superheroes. There was a woman dressed like a French maid, only with stars and stripes, cleverly called American Maid, full of virtue and an obvious mashup of Captain America and Wonder Woman in a way that also pokes fun at how women were just tagging along to men's stories, so Edlund ridiculed it by making her a literal maid. Deflator Mouse, German for The Bat, an incompetent Batman ripoff. Another side character, The Four-Legged Man, a man with four legs who leads the Civic-Minded Five, a low-key fivesome of heroes who will guard crosswalks. Crosswalks, because... You know, those are centers of crime. They're basically glorified crossing guards. 
And his enemies were equally ridiculous, too. In fact, the main villain of the show, the most powerful one, was the Terror. A beyond old, old man who'd been plaguing the world with villainy for decades. But here's how ridiculous Edlund made him. This supervillain is pretty pedestrian. He's an alleged mastermind, but without basic knowledge of militaristic strategies and extensive chemistry and scientific experience, so that's it. Also, here's what's hilarious. He wrote a workout book for old villains called Terrorizing. There was El Seed, an operatic sunflower bent on conquering the world with plants. Or how about Chairface Chippendale, my absolute favorite? A debonair man about town whose head was a chair that dreamed of carving his name onto the moon. Eventually, he partially achieved that goal, and for the rest of the series, the letters C-H-A were emblazoned on the moon whenever it was seen. Each villain was more ridiculous than the last. There was Proto-Clown, an indestructible Hulk-like clown with a honky nose that hated being laughed at and would fly into a murderous rage. And possibly the most prolific of all was the evil midnight bomber What Bombs at Midnight, who is exactly that, an evil midnight bomber who blows things up at midnight. That's it. For months, Edlund and Liebman Smith were holed up working on their pilot script, and the end result was subpar. Neither was happy with it, and neither was Fox, the studio that was looking at buying the show. But Fox did like some of it. The studio made a few suggestions, and over a single weekend, the two writers came back with something that pleased everyone. The tick was on its way from the page to the small screen. But it wasn't smooth sailing. Edlund was very protective of his characters. In fact, the show was meant to debut in 1993, but because his constant oversight, it didn't actually arrive until September of 1994. He's not ashamed of it either, because in the end, his efforts helped make The Tick resonate with audience. In an interview with Animation World magazine in 1997, he said, and I quote, There was a period where I was extremely attentive to everything that had to be solved, and these efforts ultimately made the show come a year late. I saw the storyboards that were being done and realized that if The Tick were animated off those, it would fall apart. It would be a shadow of what it is now, which is something that isn't massively successful, but it has this real staying power. So now, instead of looking like bad 90s animation, it looks like bad 70s superhero animation, which definitely has a unique style about it. And Edlund is right. I would suggest you watch some clips of The Tick and compare them to other shows it was aired with, like Eek the Cat, The X-Men, Animaniacs, and a whole slew of others. That style really holds up. There's something cleaner about it. The characters are all wildly different looking, and rather than leaning on a single color palette for the entire series, each superhero or villain group has its own arrangement of colors. Everything was unique. The animation itself was a great accompaniment for the story content and characters. There just is something very special about that show. And it wasn't just the animation. The roster of voice talent is incredible. In fact, during the first season of the show, it featured a former member of the Monkees. That's right. Monkees drummer and vocalist Mickey Dolenz was the original voice of Arthur. He'd actually done a lot of voice work throughout the years. 
Uh, he only lasted for the first season, though, but then other huge names in animation were also involved, like Maurice LaMarche, who famously voiced characters on Animaniacs and went on to work on Futurama, Dan Castellaneta, a.k.a. Homer Simpson, Brad Garrett from Everybody Loves Raymond, Rob Paulson, who wound up doing Arthur's voice for the second and third seasons of the show. And so, on September 10th, 1994, the first episode of The Tick burst through the screen on Fox Kids Saturday morning. The block included other 90s classics like Bobby's World, Tiny Toon Adventures, and the above-mentioned Animaniacs. And along with the show, it had a whole slew of merchandise with it. I was looking online at some of the action figures, and I had no idea they had such an expansive merch line. Toymaker Bondi had the license, and despite the massive amount of merch, there wasn't enough demand to create an actual playset for it. There were two lines of action figures, though, one for the first season and one for the second. There were also Pogs, trading cards, and a video game, which also came out in the fall of 1994 to tie in with the series, both for the Sega Genesis and the Super Nintendo. The game was also a Fox production from Fox Interactive, specifically. And when I think of tie-ins, like, this is the worst one. I can remember renting that game from the local video store, which which it did back then. Then I played it during the holiday break from high school, and dude, it was boring. This was a time when cutscenes for the game were just still images with scrolling dialogue, and yes, the dialogue was funny, it was definitely there, but that wasn't enough to carry you through. The levels, and there were 44 of them, had hundreds of enemies to fight in a non-stop barrage of boringness. The first level, called Night of a Million Zillion Ninjas, felt like you actually fought a million zillion ninjas. Side note, that name was actually taken from the third issue of the Tick comic. Uh, and guess what? In the comic, he fights a million zillion ninjas. And the concept's funny in a comic, but playing it in a game... Ugh, tiresome. So, despite the relative success Edlund had in landing an animated series... The Tick didn't manage to achieve the expected success of the Ninja Turtles. That was legitimately the expectation for the show, too. And Edlund has talked about how that lack of success actually made the show mean more. He said, that's essentially good as far as I'm concerned. Although I would be much more wealthy at this point, that failure to me makes the Tick a much more sincere proposal. And so, in 1996, just two years after it premiered, The Tick was cancelled. But you know what? I have to agree with how Edlund feels. There was something pure about The Tick. If you know someone who loves The Tick, aside from me, they will probably tell you about the pure, light-hearted way it tackles and lampoons dark subject matter. If you are a Ninja Turtle fan, and I'm using that example as The Tick has forever been compared to it, there's a real divide between what it was when it was created, an ultra-dark, violent, black-and-white comic, and what it is now, a boxy, animated show in an entirely new universe from where it started, complete with new villains and motivations for those characters. The Tick never really went through any of that. In all its iterations, it stayed pretty authentic. Period. But the cancellation of that animated series was in no way the end. There were already various efforts to put together a primetime TV special as a last hurrah. 
Sadly, that too failed. Fox did, however, air The Tick's Christmas special the following year in primetime. The Tick Loves Santa. It's always on my schedule of holiday viewing. In fact, we might just cover it next Christmas, so stay tuned. In it, The Tick does battle with a crook dressed as Santa who is mutated after crashing into a giant rooftop neon light sign and can then duplicate themselves. Thus, multiple Santa is born, who launches a crime wave against the Tick's beloved city. The Tick and his friends are tasked with stopping multiple Santa by the real Santa. It's classic. So, that was that. The Tick was done. It wound up in syndication on Cartoon Network, and here in Canada we started airing it on Teletoon. Ben Edlund, however, had other things already in the works. He had dreams of something bigger, something those pesky mutated turtles hadn't been able to do. A full-on primetime live-action series. Almost five years to the date of the cancellation of the animated TV show, The Tick debuted on Fox once again. Yes, Fox. Again. And this version was stacked. Barry Sonnenfeld had signed on to direct. Now, that's a name that should ring a bell. You know his work. Adam's Family, the Men in Black trilogy. They even had a huge lineup of guest stars like Ron Perlman, the kids in the halls Dave Foley, and even Doc Brown himself, Christopher Lloyd. Was this it? Was The Tick about to hit a new zenith? Before we get to that, I've got to tell you how this show even came to be. In short, a lot of lawyers made a lot of money. And to be honest with you, finding these details was really frustrating because you can find a lot of sources telling half the story online, but no one out there seems to have the straight goods. So this is me piecing together the most consistent bits of information. If someone has a full documentation of this stuff, please email me. Contact information in the show notes. Disney had acquired the rights to material aired on Fox Kids. I couldn't find the ins and outs as to how this happened. It's just what people kept talking about. I had also read that Sony had them. Regardless, I just know that Fox did not have the rights to the material that was created explicitly for the animated series. Remember that contract that Ben Edlin signed with Kisscom that we talked about a few minutes ago? Anything that had appeared in the comic before the animated series was created was available for use in any other medium the tick appeared in. The unfortunate aspect of that contract was that some of the most popular characters in the animated series like Deflator Mouse, American Maid, were creations made exclusively for the animated series, which meant they were gone, legally speaking. Edlund even addressed this without naming names while speaking to a Tick fan site in the months leading up to the live-action release. He said the contractual challenges forced them to reinvestigate their motives and had to engineer it from the ground up, applying what they learned over the years to create a better, stronger Tick. The show would be closer in tone to the comic book, favoring character over action, painting a superheroic portrait of genuine human lameness. That interview is a really cool, in-depth breakdown of his attitude while leading into the new series, and I'll include the link to it in my show notes. So if you want to take a look at it, 
Have at her. So in this new series, the audience got to meet a retooled cast of characters like Batman Well and Captain Liberty, who were knockoffs of the characters from the animated series. But the most obvious change was the Tick's costume. For the first time, you could see his entire face, which in the cartoon and comics had been hidden by a cowl with pupilless eyes. The live-action Tick was played by Patrick Walburton. You might remember him as Putty on Seinfeld. He was a big get. Seinfeld is one of the most popular, successful television shows ever. And to have one of its former stars on the project meant publicity followed. And there are people online who will insist the costume change was because Walburton is a big star and the network wanted people to see his face. And that's not entirely wrong. But the actual decision to show Patrick Walburton's whole face was made by costume designer Colleen Atwood and Ben Edlund himself. And they both felt that Patrick's face was far too expressive to hide behind a mask. Showing his face gave the character a larger range of motion and made him more expressive on the screen. There were other changes as well, and it seemed like the longer pre-production went on, the more frustrated Edlund became with what the show was destined to be. He spoke directly with fans about it during an interview on Slashdot, and again, I'll toss the link up in the show notes for you. And in that interview, he directly addresses the major tonal changes the live-action series was taking, particularly drinking, like alcohol, and the use of the word bitch. He wasn't happy. To give you an example, there's a scene in the very first episode. The Tick is fighting with a bus stop coffee machine that refuses to give him coffee. No, it's not super-powered or anything. It's just a broken coffee machine. But in the end, the Tick says, Java Devil, you are my bitch. And that was something his creator never liked. I remember when that aired in the fall of 2001, and it really did feel off from the tone I, as a Tick fan, expected. The Tick is supposed to be eager and childlike, so eager and childlike, he's a parody. So something so negative and adult coming out of his mouth was just weird. But things were proceeding as best they could, although it didn't bode well for the series that the Tick wound up being saddled with a dismal time slot. In fact, they were up against Will and Grace! And NBC's monster must-see TV Thursday. Now remember, this was before PVRs existed, so you could only watch one show at a time. Which meant that from the get-go, ratings were low. So low that the show only lasted nine episodes. But eventually was released on DVD two years later in 2003. So, no. This version of The Tick didn't reach a new zenith, but there was one positive outcome. Series creator Christopher McCullough became friends with Patrick Walburton and invited him to voice a character named Brock Sampson on his new adult swim series, Venture Brothers, which was part of the explosion of late-night dark comedy animation in the mid-2000s. And Walburton, well, he's always maintained his love for The Tick. Years later... When doing an interview in 2005 with AMC, he ranted about Fox's mismanagement of the property, claiming they didn't own the IP, so they refused to properly promote it. That the network insisted it cost too much. And that led to the network giving them a time slot that effectively doomed the show from the get-go. 
Even a decade after that, he was eager to talk about the newest version of the tick, which had been picked up by Amazon Prime. That's where we're going now. The latest chapter in the tick saga, the 2016 Amazon Prime series. Now, if you've been away from pop culture, let me catch you up. We are living in the golden age of television, the era of streaming content, coupled with immediate viewer reaction, thanks to social media. Lump that in with an audience that was highly familiar with superhero content. Was this to be the time when The Tick finally got its due? Well... This latest version of The Tick debuted in August 2016. You might not remember this, but at this time, Amazon Prime was reliant on the votes of its viewers on social media to determine if a pilot got its own series. So they released just the pilot, and evidently, it did the tick. I mean, trick. And so just over a year later, during late summer of 2017, The Tick joined the roster of shows on Netflix's arch-nemesis, Amazon Prime. And one of the most telling things about The Tick is that the people who become involved with the Big Blue Salmon of Justice tend to stay and continue to support the Big Blue Salmon of Justice. Patrick Walburton, the former Tick himself, was one of the producers behind this new show. And so was former series director Barry Sonnenfeld. They both believed in the product and were fully invested, along with original series creator Ben Edlund. I even asked Susan Hurwitz-Arneson, one of the head writers on the series, what it is about The Tick that keeps everyone coming back. I think that, that Ben is such a special, amazing guy that, yeah, people want to come back. People want to work with Ben. I mean, beyond the fact that he's, he's, he's absolutely brilliant and, like, pulls shit from his brain that I'm like, <laughs> I have no idea where that came from, but holy crap, we have to do that. But... Yeah, no, he's a really special, really good, I, I'll say, I mean, I say it all the time about Ben, he's just a good human. And, you know, working with him and creating characters with him is really a special thing. And, you know, you know, Midnight the Dog was voiced by, um, oh my God, I'm going to forget his name and I feel terrible, the same man who voiced the Tick in the animated series. So there was another hidden little gem for I didn't you. catch that. Yeah. I didn't catch that back. one. Yeah. Yeah. So Midnight and the Tick are the same. Why am I totally spacing on his name? And I feel really bad because he's such a talented voice artist. I always want to so say Paul Freeze, but he's from the Rocky and Bullwinkle show. I don't think it was Paul Freeze. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's it's not. I would recognize the name, and I'm, I feel bad that I can't remember at the moment. But yeah, he came back and, and did the voice of Midnight for us. You know, and then uh, Danger Boat. Yeah, I mean, everybody who's... Who, there's people that have worked with Ben that are, that are very much um, woven through, I think, uh, different iterations of the show. While prepping for this episode, I have rewatched a lot of Tick stuff. And I feel like you can see the phases of Ben Edlund in each of these series. The nuance of the Tick has changed along with its creator. The over-the-top cartoony goofiness of youth that made the animated series so different and special was still there. But like anyone, as a person gets older, they develop emotionally. And so has the tick. Susan Hurwitz Arneson agreed. No, I think it's absolutely true. I think it's absolutely true. I mean, Ben created the tick when he was 17 years old. You know, he's 50 now. So I think that not only, you know, uh, life experiences, um, worldviews, you know, and also experience as a writer, 
in television really started to shape how he wanted to do a new version of The Tick. Um, so absolutely, I think the the deeper, sort of almost smarter look at the universe that we did for the Amazon show, I think, is, is absolutely reflective of, of Ben growing up as a creative and, and taking those characters that he birthed as a child and trying to take them with him. The new series was founded on what had come before. The premise was still outlandish, and the latest actor to don the blue cowl was far more like the original animated version than Patrick Walburton had been. I liked Patrick Walburton's take, by the way. It's great. But it always felt like his take on the character, whereas Peter Serafinowicz felt like he was directly channeling the animated version from decades earlier. Today you wake anew, ready to begin following the hero's way. I think you're right, Tick. What? But along with that, the series had taken on a far more adult tone. Not adult with foul language and violent sexual themes, but adult as in emotion. They were creating a far more dramatic version of the Tick's world, with just as much character development as comedy. And in this version of the show, the titular character wasn't even the star anymore. Arthur... The cowering, reluctant sidekick was, in fact, the lead banana. In previous versions, he followed the tick, as the tick drove the content around each episode. In this new series, the tick spends most of his efforts following Arthur around, convincing him to become what destiny demands, a crime-fighting superhero. And that was a conscious decision from Edlund and his writing staff. Including as, as, as beloved as the tick is as a character, his sort of crazy, his worldview, his way of speaking and alliterations, all those things that make up the tick. When you really get to the core of the character, there's not a big inner life with the tick, right? So he is he is the tick. He, you know, he fights evil. He's about justice. He's a walking, talking superhero straight out of the comics in a comic book world. So when you want to spend time with characters, it's very difficult to get emotional stories to get, you know, even in a comedy, you want it to be tethered in um, true character, emotion and journey and stuff like that. But because the tick is just the tick, it's very hard to build a whole show that's going to grow and carry an audience with you when you're dependent on just that character. So you have to look at and this is where, again, Ben is so brilliant. You have to look at the supporting characters of the other characters in that world to see how we can deepen them and by them find a way to deepen the tick to a degree. Because the tick isn't a character who's going to sit too much and go, huh, I don't know why I'm feeling this way. I feel, hmm, maybe if I did this, I'd feel different. No, he's sort of a single-minded purpose character who can have some growth, of course, which he think he did very much in the Amazon series, but for really wanting to grab a hold of um, an audience's heart, you, you, I think you need the human characters to do that. And pairing them with Tick, I think, fills out Tick and also pushes our characters to, uh, to sort of get his way and view of looking at the world. The show focuses on how, as a child, Arthur witnessed the death of his father, who'd been a bystander as the Terror, the series' main villain, did battle with the Flag Five, the Tick versus version of the Justice League, or Avengers. And now that he was an adult, he was coming to grips with his childhood trauma and building a life for himself. When guess who walks into his life? The big blue bastion of justice, the Tick. I don't want to give you any more than that, but I can't recommend the show enough. 
it really is a great way to execute nostalgia because if you're like me and grew up loving The Tick, this version is like The Tick that grew up alongside of us. It tackles more complex themes like PTSD and coming to grips with who you are, embracing your own identity, even though it's not what others may expect. The difficulty of losing one's family, the difficulties of remaining close with one's family, loving someone who doesn't treat you properly, really grown-up content, but it's not preachy. The Tick has always been honest and authentic. And this new version of The Tick was also far more successful than the previous live-action series, and it wound up getting a second season. With all it had going for it, though, it still wasn't enough. And sadly, in the spring of 2019, just a few weeks after the second season was released, Ben Edlund announced on Twitter that Amazon opted not to order a third season. Efforts were made by fans to save the series. There was a social media campaign with the hashtag SaveTheTick. But in June of 2019, Ben Edlund again took to Twitter saying that after all the fan support, the show was ending. It couldn't find a home. But was that it? Is the tick truly gone? He says it is. But how can it? In fact, according to Susan Hurwitz Arneson, there were plans in place even if she gets a bit mum about what they were specifically. <laughs> uh, no. Ah. Um, see, there's a, <laughs> I mean, I could, but I mean, there's a secret hope. I think, you know, Ben, ben has said this, the greatest thing, and, it, and I think it's very true. It's like, you know, it, it broke both of our hearts. We worked really closely, especially the second season. Most of the second season is, is very tied to him and I working together and, you know, me supporting him and, and helping to create his vision. And, you know, he, he's always said, as, as much as we put our heart into all of it, every few years, the tick will rise again. And so, you know, there's been talk, I don't know how legit it is from Sony, who's the one who owns the rights. There's been talks about maybe we can investigate this world in movies. You know, maybe we can continue with this cast and this version of the tickverse in features and continue on with the story. So I wouldn't want to give away a story for that reason. But, I, you know, we were, we were going to investigate, and I think a lot of people wanted to know Tick's origin. We were going to, by the fifth season, we were going to talk about that. Dot was going to continue, you know, in her superhero journey. And I can't really tell you anything else. The Tick is the 28th greatest comic character of all time, according to Empire Magazine, beating out characters like Spawn, Deadpool, and even Daredevil. Wizard Magazine puts him at number 187 on their all-time list, and IGM has him at 57 on their list of great characters. So maybe we'll see him again, because people do love the tick. At least if you give him a chance. But I think I need to expand on that a bit. It's not just the tick people love. It's who he is in relation to the world around him. In a time where we're drowning in gritty, jaded heroes like the Punisher and the entire cast of The Boys, he's still doing the right thing. Not because he's better than you. He's not overly noble or police-like. He's a pure, innocent, bumbling idiot that doesn't understand why anyone would want to be mean to each other. And in the bickering, social media-fueled, divided media hellscape that we live in, that's really refreshing. Now, as you know, on every episode of this show, we leave you with some Issue Zero recommends. And this one is simple. Go give a little love to The Tick, okay? The Tick is our Issue Zero recommends this week, obviously. 
Big special thanks to our guests Xander Cannon and Susan Herwitz Arneson for joining us today. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to Issue Zero so that you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps us spread the word, get more people to find the podcast. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard and links to all our guests. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, you can find me at Fearless underscore Fred. On Facebook and Instagram, you can email me at IssueZero at CuriousCast.ca. The show is hosted and written by me, Fred Kennedy, our amazing producer, Dila Velasquez, and sound design and final production by the very tall Rob Johnson. I'll see you next time for more Issue Zero. Issue Zero.